after a break. It's wonderful to see all of you. And uh, for those of you who are listening to this recording, um, we are happy to bring you new material. Thanks for joining us once again. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you for your presence in this place. And we ask, Lord, for Holy Spirit just to come upon every word that will be declared this evening. Father, every part that has been prepared, that has been um, spent in your presence, even just asking you for the right points, Lord, we submit this back to you, Lord. And we thank you that your word will go forth and it will not return to you void. So please be with me and be with all of us as we worship you through the declaration of the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, so far we have gone through the book of Matthew, only two chapters. And today on the 8th of July, coming back here, this is really the start of phase two. In the past few sessions, we have only managed to cover Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2. And in there, we have explored the purpose of this book of Matthew. That Matthew was really making a case for Jesus as the Messiah that was prophesied of in the Scriptures. We have learned about Jesus' genealogy. We read about His birth, the meaning of His name, which really contains His assignment. We learned about the worship of the king. We found out about the threat by Herod, as well as Jesus' flight into Egypt, followed by his new exodus out of Egypt. We've learned also in these two chapters the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. This has brought us right up to Nazareth, uh, the region of Galilee, where he spent most of his growing up years in. And that's where we stopped. After the end of chapter 2, it will be some 20 plus years before we hear anything else. And so we join Matthew now in chapter 3, and we see that John the Baptist appears on the scene almost suddenly. This is what we will be studying across the next few weeks. Not much is said about John, and I believe Matthew presumes his readers already know a little bit about John the Baptist. But through the other Gospels, we see that Mark opens with a very quick introduction about John the Baptist. Luke is the most descriptive and contains John's birth in Luke chapter 1. Zechariah's prophecy in Luke 2. And then a little bit about John's ministry in Luke 3. The Gospel of John begins with Jesus as the Word and the true light and then positions John the Baptist as the one who will be introducing Jesus. So we're going to camp at these, in these verses for quite a few weeks. We want to learn about John and we want to see what lessons can we draw from John. It will be a quick survey of Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. And I ask you to allow me to share some points about John and invite you to consider how these might apply to you and also to myself. Tonight, we will like have a quick scan or quick survey through those few points. And in the following weeks, we will dive more deeply into some of these themes. For example, what is repentance? John mentions fire. What is this fire all about? John had a ministry of baptism. 
How do we understand this? So on and so forth, okay? And we'll go deep into some of these themes, but for today, it would really just be a quick survey. So if you have your Bibles with you, join me in Matthew chapter 3. Let's read 1 to 12 for tonight, okay? And then we will draw some quick points from that. Matthew chapter 3, starting from verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him, and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Twelve verses, and I'm going to share with you some points this evening about John. What can we learn about John, and what can we learn from John from this little passage that we have just read? The first thing we see is that John was the prophesied Elijah mentioned in Malachi. He dressed and looked like Elijah the prophet. Because in Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, it says he was clothed in camel's hair with leather belt around his waist, and his diet was of locusts and wild honey. That seemed to be the dress code for prophets in those days. And you can identify a prophet from the way they dressed. We see in 2 Kings, verse 1 and 8. 2 Kings, chapter 1, verse 8. And they said to him, A hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. And the king immediately uh, identified who this hairy man was. And he declares, It is Elijah the Tishbite. So I don't know if John really looked like that in this, like I'm showing you in this picture, but he probably was looking a little bit unkempt. He's got a funny kind of a cloth on, and he's got leather belt. Now, not only did he dress and look like Elijah, we know also that he was identified as Elijah, not the person of Elijah, but he came in the spirit of Elijah. In other words, he's not a reincarnation you know, of, of Elijah per se, but he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Because in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, 
the prophet declares, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the father to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, it is actually declared that he will also go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. The same phrasing, the same quotation, to turn the hearts of the father to the children. So John the Baptist wasn't physically that Elijah, but he was a type of Elijah. He was like Elijah. And we know that Elijah was a fiery prophet, and uh, he was actually quite scary. So John came with a kind of a power, with a kind of a spirit. But the most accurate would be, of course, Jesus, because he himself identified John. He says, John is that Elijah. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 13. He says, if you are willing to receive it, in other words, some may still reject that this might be the Elijah that is to come. If you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. And then he goes on, actually, he says in verse 10 before that, he says, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So Jesus was also quoting from the book of Malachi, and this time from chapter 3 and verse 1, where Malachi says, on behalf of God, telling the people of Israel, that look, before the coming of the Lord, He will send a messenger. And so Jesus clarifies, John is that messenger. Not only is he a messenger, he is the messenger. This is Elijah that is to come. In other words, that is also affirming himself as God coming onto the scene. So this is the very first thing we learn about John. He is that Elijah. Now this is important because we know that the people of God, the Israel people, are still waiting for an Elijah to come. That many times now, even in the celebration of their Passover, if you are familiar with the Jewish feasts and the Jewish custom. They will set their table and there will be a chair that will be empty. And that chair is empty because they are waiting and they are saying, perhaps this year, Elijah will come. And so if Elijah should come, there will be a chair ready for him. And this has become a tradition, a Jewish tradition. Okay? So you see, this is important about John because Jesus says, you don't have to wait for this Elijah anymore. He has already come. And I am that Messiah. So if you will receive John as the Elijah, then you will receive me as the Messiah. Having established that, we look at the second point. John actually bridged the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. He links both Malachi and Matthew. Now, you and I know that between Malachi and Matthew, we have this period of silence called the intertestamental silence where the Word of God uh, was not heard at all. Now, it does not mean that God was not speaking. He, he did speak to individuals, but it did not come to an entire nation. And so there was no prophetic voice. God spoke through angels. God spoke to you know, the individual. But for the nation, there was no prophetic voice. 
And suddenly John comes out preaching and he breaks that silence on behalf of God. Even Jesus, in quoting about John, in Matthew chapter 11, verses 12 and 13, he uses the phrase, from the days of John the Baptist and until John. Can you see this? And so John sort of straddles both the, the old as well as the new. And although that there was no prophetic voice, we know that the story has not ended. With John coming onto the scene, we are told that the story actually continues. And a beautiful thing, a side point that we can glean from this is that the silence of God does not mean the disappearance of God. Amen? Right? Just because God keeps silence in our situations doesn't mean that He has disappeared altogether, that He does not care. Similarly, when we look into the birth of Jesus, in the accounts of Matthew chapter 1 and 2, you know, it, it was like so many things were happening. The birth was, was, was announced, you know, uh, uh, this thing was happening, Herod comes onto the scene, the, the, the wise man appears, you know, and so on and so forth. So many things and suddenly it goes quiet. It goes quiet. What has happened? What is going on? And 20 plus years after that, God breaks the silence again through John. And so John bridges what ends in the Malachi or seems to end in the Malachi and opens up what Matthew is right now, the very first book. And so we begin to see also that it is not really the, it's not the Old Testament versus the New Testament. It is both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now this is important for us because today there are many teachings that tell you because this Old Testament is no longer relevant for you, you don't have to read it anymore. You only need to look at the New Testament. And it does not help that we have the two words that identify these two sections called old and new. Nobody likes old, right? Everybody loves new. The old really refers to the old covenant and the new refers to the new covenant and it's accurate. But that is all it describes. And because if we throw away the old, and we only hold only to the new, or we hold one section and not the other section, then we miss the overarching meta-narrative of what God wants to do from the start to the end. John comes onto the scene and, and he bridges both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And through this, we can see that the New Testament is actually very much rooted in the Old Testament. If you want to understand your New Testament, you, it, will, it will help you and it will enrich you greatly if you learn what it is really saying from the Old Testament. Give you an example. If you want to go through the book of Hebrews, do you realize you can't understand Hebrews well if you don't get into Old Testament, specifically the book that we all love, Leviticus. The New Testament is rooted in the Old Testament, but the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. So you need both. You need both. It's one book. It's one book. You can look at it as two volumes. That's fine. So today, the politically correct way of, of uh, calling the uh, Old Testament is actually the Hebrew Scriptures. So we take away the word old, you see. So we have both the Hebrew Scriptures and we have the Christian Scriptures in that sense. Do you realize that the only Bible Jesus and the apostles had was the Old Testament? That each time when you read, even in the New Testament, when it says scriptures, it's referring to the Old Testament. 
And it's wonderful that the New Testament writers bring us the, the revelation and the understanding of the Old Testament. And that's why we are now privileged to have these letters and these writings canonized, recognized as Scripture for us. So John is pivotal. He comes in and he's like that, that link where God speaks all the way to Malachi, stops, and then now as we compile the new from Matthew all the way to Revelation, you know, John stands right down there, you know, and, and holds these two books together and tells you, okay, I'm that voice, that transition that moves from the old and to the new. But however we want to understand it, the thing to remember always is that the Bible says that Scripture will always reveal Jesus Christ. That's the most important thing for us to take away this evening. Whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, ask the Lord as you read Scripture. Say, Lord, show me Jesus through all this. Help me understand Jesus because He is the King. He is the Messiah. He is the one who was, who is, and is to come. And so I want to study Scripture that it will reveal Jesus within my heart. You see, my pet peeve and my concern today is that, you know, especially for us in Singapore and, and the rest of, of the world even, for us who are educated and we have the privilege and the blessing of having so many books written for us, is that we keep reading and we have Bible study and we buy so many things and yet, do you know, we can still miss Jesus through this whole thing. It's the same thing with the Pharisees. So Jesus had this to say to them in John chapter 5, verse 39 to verse 40. He says, you know, you look into the Scriptures and you're searching the Scriptures. In it, you hope to find eternal life. And they were experts in the law. They know the Scriptures so well. They can memorize it front to back and back to front. And here Jesus says, you are looking for eternal life. But do you know that the Scripture testify of me? Let me paraphrase that for you. What Jesus is saying is that you are looking to Scripture for eternal life, but excuse me, eternal life is standing in front of you. And you are missing eternal life. And the scary thing for Christians today is that if we do not understand this revelation, then we can get into Scripture, quote it back to front, post it on Facegram and Instagram, you know, and Facegram. I'm going to start that. We can post it on Facebook and Instagram and think we know Jesus. This is not true. So the lovely thing about John is that he bridged both Old Testament and the New Testament. All Scripture starts and ends with Jesus and is a revelation of God through the person of Christ. The third thing about John is that he knew his place. He knew who he was. He knew exactly his place. And he served to always point to Jesus. So we see this in verse 11 of Matthew chapter 3. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he is coming after me, is mightier than I. Whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In John, we actually see the last of the Old Testament type of the of three things, of the law, of the prophet, and of the priest. It says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 13 and 14, it says, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. So Jesus is saying, he is the, he's the last Old Testament type. He declares the law, he prophesies it, and in him it, is, it has come all the way until John. 
What happens after John? It's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You see that? So Jesus is saying, comes all the way to John. He's the last Old Testament type. After that, the law and the prophets fulfilled in Jesus Christ. At the same time, do you know John was also the son of a priest? Zacharias was a priest under the order of Abijah. His mother, Elizabeth, is actually a daughter after the order of Aaron. And so he is born into a priestly family. He is a son of an Aaronic line that comes through. And so in that sense, he's also the end of the Old Testament type of the priest, signifying an end of the temple system, the end of the Aaronic priesthood, and it makes way for a new priesthood. Do you know what this priesthood is called? It's after the order of Melchizedek. So John understood his place. He knows that as he comes, he is fulfilling something to a certain point, and after that, he needs to hand over now to Jesus. Everything that is within him or placed upon him as his assignment, he will fulfill it, bring it to a close, and as he hands over the ministry over to Jesus, Jesus is going to increase. He's going to decrease, and Jesus will fulfill everything. We also see that his baptism was by water unto repentance, we are told. His baptism, popular as it was in those days, thousands would come to him. It's whole regions, right? You could see that Jerusalem, Judea, the entire region. He had a popular ministry, so to speak. But however popular it was, it would be superseded by the baptism of Jesus. Jesus' baptism will be different from the baptism of John. Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. We will explore this in the weeks to come. But after that, we are also told that the Christians have now a baptism. And our Christian baptism is also different from the baptism of John. There's no longer a baptism of John. It's only that of Jesus by the Holy Spirit and ours as Christians and believers of Jesus Christ. So we will study this a little bit more next time. Now John knew his place. He was not threatened by Jesus' growing popularity and ministry. In John chapter 3, verse 26, it reads this. The people came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, referring to Jesus, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. These guys are saying, look, you're baptizing. This Jesus, huh? he just set up shop down the river. He, he's, taking your, he's taking your membership. You're losing tithe. You know, you're, you're, you're losing people now, okay? And John wasn't threatened at all. He says, look, come on. I'm only the friend of the bridegroom, right? That was John chapter 3. I'm only the friend of the bridegroom. When the bridegroom comes, the friends should be rejoicing. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And it's wonderful that he's come because I'm only the forerunner. I'm here only just to point to him and I know my place. I will decrease. Jesus will keep increasing. And he will have the name above all names. Praise the Lord. See, all ministries, every ministry, must point to Jesus. Every ministry will have to make way for Jesus. 
Because when He comes, that's all that matters. Amen? It has to be Him and Him only. So John's task was to prepare the way for the king and to point to the king of the kingdom. And if you notice in Matthew chapter 3, I made this observation. Do you know Matthew starts with a voice in the wilderness but ends with a voice from heaven? It starts with John, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. But it will end with Jesus, where the voice of heaven declares, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Sometimes I read the scripture, I say, Wow, well, Lord, you know, how you inspired Matthew and the writers you know, to write in a way you know, that, that is just so beautiful. It just covers everything. That It starts with John, he introduces him, and suddenly he ends with Jesus. And this is what we learn about John. He knew his place and he served always to point to Jesus. The fourth thing about John is that he announced the kingdom boldly and without compromise. Verses 1 and 2, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. His first line, his first recorded line. And he declares the kingdom of heaven. Now we understand that the kingdom of heaven is seen as synonymous with the kingdom of God because in order not to offend the Jews that Matthew was writing to, he doesn't use the word God. God is too holy a name, you know, to be used flippantly or too casually. And so he uses heaven as a, different, uh, as a, as a term to replace the word God. So John comes onto the scene and he declares, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now what does it mean that the kingdom is at hand? Literally, it means that the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. It has come very close to you. If I put my hand close to your face, that's how close it is. You see that? And so John is saying, guys, get ready. This is how close it's come to you. But let us not misunderstand this because the kingdom is not entirely here yet. It's come close. It's drawn very near, but it's not entirely here yet. The kingdom has come, but not in its entire fullness yet. You will see its manifestation. You'll see its power. You'll see the glory. You'll see the demonstration of it. But its fullness has not been there yet. Jesus later will affirm John's message and ministry. Because in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, he declares the same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, it's my personal conviction that the kingdom is here, but not yet. This is what we wrestle with. The kingdom is here. It's amongst us. It's within us. And yet, it's not yet fully here. And that's why we are praying, Lord, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Because if it's here already, we don't have to ask for the kingdom to come anymore. We're saying, Lord, your kingdom, please come. Let it come. Fullness. And we believe that when Jesus finally steps onto the scene, when He comes again, He will consummate the fullness of the kingdom. And that will be the fullness and He will rule with a rod by righteousness. See, I want to make this point because... There are teachings today that tell you that the kingdom is fully here. Fully here. 
But I've gone through the readings and all, and personally I'm convicted that it is here, but not yet. And I'm sharing this with you so that you can process this, you can read this, you can pray about it yourself, and come to a point of conviction or conclusion yourself. But he doesn't just declare that the kingdom has drawn near. He doesn't just say, oh, you know, kingdom has come, oh, it's very near, okay, bye. doesn't say that. He starts with the very first word, repent. So he tells the people, because the kingdom is drawn near, this is what you can expect. And this is how you should respond. This is important, right? No point declaring the kingdom and then leave the people to wonder what it's all about. And so depending on how you respond, the kingdom of God can be either really good news or it can be really bad news. You know, we tend to think that the kingdom is good news. And that's true because Jesus says, you preach the good news of the kingdom. But you realize that if you don't respond to the good news of the kingdom, when the kingdom comes, it's going to be bad news. So John does not hide anything. He tells you, look, because the kingdom is not is in its entirety, it's made its appearance, but it's not in its entirety yet, there's still time for you to decide how you want to respond. But when the fullness of the kingdom finally comes, there is no longer any time for you to respond. And so he tells the people, repent. Repent. There's something you need to change. This is how you have to respond. This is, this is what it's all about. Because the king is coming, you have to learn how to align yourself with what the king is all about, what his kingdom is all about, so that you can change your perspective of things and not just the way you think, but also affect the way you live. Because when the king comes... He will rule according to those standards. At the same time, John also clears up misconceptions and presumptions. See, to the Jews, when you tell a Jew the kingdom of God is coming or has come, they will tend to equate that with this one big term called the day of the Lord. In Old Testament theology, you will look at this. It's a prophetic declaration. They're always praying the day of the Lord. Come, bring that day. We want to see that day. That the King will come, the Messiah will appear. It's the day of the Lord. Now, you know why they're so excited about it? Because they've been under foreign oppression, foreign rule, foreign dominion, and so on. They are no longer their own people, and they're saying, Oh, come, let the day come. When the day comes, Malachi chapter 3, verse 2 says, Who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? Their idea and their theology is, when the Messiah comes, Oh! He's going to free us. But the foreign people, oh guys, you better watch out, you know. My king is coming. He's going he's to whack you all. So to them, they presume it's going to be great for them. But it's going to be terrible for other people. That's their presumption. But John looks at them and says, guys, you don't presume anything. Don't, don't presume anything. Because he looks at the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are all supposed to be God's people. He says, do not think to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. So in other words, he's looking at all who are physical descendants of Abraham and tells each and every one of them, hello, you wave your Abraham birth cert, nah? no use. If your life doesn't show it, no use. Don't presume just because you wave your Abraham card, 
it's going to be fine with you. Now, this is shocking to the people to, to hear this. Don't take the title people of God for granted. Is there a message here? The covenantal status of Israel as God's covenant people may be declared corporately, but John is trying to tell these people, you be careful because it still requires a response personally. Don't miss this point. Because is God a promise keeper? Yes, He is. Is Israel the covenant people of God? Yes, they are. And God will declare that right to the end. And you hold on to that right to the end. But you see, that's corporate Israel. But everyone who considers themselves a person of God or a Jew by his own right in those days, he will still have to live and respond personally. Okay, it's a very stark message here because we can all shout that we're all people of God and we can rest in that and we should, but then we can also be presumptuous about that too. That once we are saved, we don't have to worry about anything else. And that's why John announced the kingdom boldly and without compromise. After that, this is what John's assignment really is all about. He prepared God's people for the coming king. What I've put here on the slide, let me read this one line to you. God's people must be prepared and made ready for the coming of Jesus because they are not necessarily ready, although they think they are. Right? This is an extension from the point I gave you just now. They thought, we are people of God. Come, come, king, come. Bring the kingdom. Bring it on, man. And here comes John saying, hello, you don't presume huh, that you're ready. Huh? Because if you think you're ready, then I don't need to be sent here with an assignment to make you ready. But it's so clear that in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, this was declared over John. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. For what reason? To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This was John's announcement. This was John's assignment. The people of God thought they would be ready. But this passage tells us otherwise. God has to send a messenger to declare the coming of the king. Now we know in times past that this is a common thing. It's a herald. It's someone who will run before the coming of a king. So that he comes into this place and says, the king is coming. Can you please get ready? Make sure your houses are swept clean, you know. Make sure that your streets are all uh, paved nicely and so on. We had this little experience when we went to Philippines to minister uh, earlier this year. That before we arrived, one week before us, the Pope made his, uh, made his appearance. And so we joked to say that the Pope was our forerunner. But what did they have to do for the Pope? The Pope visited this place that was devastated by the typhoon. And so there were a lot of still uh, uh, rubbish and garbage and you know, a lot of things were all over the place. But because the Pope was coming, they cleaned it all up, up to a certain kilometre. After that, it was still the same. 
they prepared the way for a dignitary that was coming in. And it's the same. When the king is about to arrive, there will always be a messenger that will be sent before the king to say, can you get things right? Because the king is coming. And I believe it's the same message for all of us. If we declare that Jesus is coming, then I believe the Lord is wanting us to get our lives in order. He's wanting our houses, in that sense, to be swept clean for Him, that we put things in order for Him. How will John prepare God's people? You actually read more detail in Luke chapter 1, verse 77 to 79, in conjunction with verse 17, which I read to you. Luke chapter 1, verse 17 really is a quotation from Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. By turning hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Do you realize that God is beginning to stir His people towards this prophecy? If you are familiar with the Elijah 7000 movement in Singapore, God has already stirred the heart of this dear brother called Jason Wong as well as many other fathers who are lining up together with Jason. And they are praying for the fathers in Singapore to arise. There's a spirit of Elijah that is coming upon this land. It's turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children back to the fathers. Do you know that since a couple of weeks ago, they have begun a prayer initiative, not just the 50-day uh, which we have those books and we are following at this point in time, a prayer initiative specially for Elijah 7000 and they have taken an inspiration from Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. 4, 5, 6. And they are coming together every morning, 4.56 a.m. to pray. Isn't that amazing? God is waking these people up, fathers coming together to pray. And the brother messaged me. I was talking to him. He said, most of the time, when they wake up and they're on the way there, they're thinking, man, we're doing a really stupid and crazy thing. But every time after a prayer, they are so encouraged and they are so enriched because God meets them there. See, God is moving in our midst. God is sending the spirit of Elijah upon His people to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Now, don't, don't look at the, the non-believers and say, oh, we're talking about you. No, come on. I mean, how many Christians do you know needs to hear this message of obedience? God's people need to be turning from disobedience to obedience. Someone asked me, what's our keepers awakening all about? Are you going to teach a, a course like uh, how to hear God? Uh, you know, I say, how many times do you want to teach this course how to hear God? After you hear God, are you going to obey Him or not? If not, hear God for what? Better don't attend the course. How do we turn the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the just? There's a spirit of Elijah that's coming on the people to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins according to his grace and mercy. By giving light to those who sit in darkness and a shadow of death. By guiding their feet into the way of peace. See, John's ministry, you may say, oh, you know, he's like Old Testament. We, are, we, we don't come in that way anymore. Do you know John's ministry is still calling people 
back to righteousness and holiness and fruitfulness. Do you think that message has changed for our day? It has not changed. It's still the same call to righteousness, to holiness, and to fruitfulness. The only difference between John and ourselves is that when John declared it, the Holy Spirit was not poured out yet. And the, whole, and the people will be coming to him and say, we, we, we can't make it. You'll find in all of Matthew when we're doing the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus sets a standard that we all cannot make it. The difference is that Jesus comes after them and we who believe, we are baptized with the Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit, we have been enabled to live a life of righteousness, holiness, and fruitfulness. But the message remains the same. And if we want to prepare God's people and prepare ourselves for the coming of Jesus, might I suggest to you and submit to you that it's the same call to holiness, to righteousness, and not only that, but also to fruitfulness. The next point about John that we learn is that he had a voice and he was not afraid to use it. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John himself declares, I am that voice you're talking about. You're looking for any voice? No, no, I'm that one. Can you hear this? I'm the voice. Hello, hi. I am the voice crying in the wilderness. But just in case you are thinking that, you know, this voice is not nice to listen to, Look at the context of Isaiah chapter 40. That's where this passage is taken from. That's where this prophecy is, is, first, is, is quoted from. And this prophecy is fulfilled in the person of John. Let me tell you that this voice is a voice of comfort. Now when you hear me say that, you're like, huh, really? We've got voice of comfort. If you understand Isaiah, it's always been referred to like a mini Bible. 66 chapters of Isaiah. 39 chapters, volume 1. Chapter 40 onwards to chapter 66. It's like a volume 2. Two different themes in Isaiah. It's always seen as if it's like a mini Old Testament and a mini New Testament. 39 books and 27 books. Isaiah 39 does not end quite as well. If you know your Bible, Isaiah 39 ends with a pronouncement of judgment upon the people of Israel. Hezekiah is the one that receives the judgment, but he sort of shrugs it off. He says, at least there will be peace and truth in my days. And it stops there. After that, chapter 40 opens up. And it's a new section. And chapter 40 onwards is a, it's a voice of hope. It's a voice of comfort. It's a voice of restoration. Because when it ends in chapter 39, what happens after that? It's going to be a devastation of the people of Israel. But chapter 40 verse 1, it opens with comfort, comfort, speak comfort to my people. And in verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. You see, John comes as that voice of comfort. Because for years after that, the people have been waiting for this voice to come to them. And he comes onto the scene right now. He says, I am this voice. 
I'm this voice and it's a voice of comfort. But before you can have a restoration, you need to understand there has to be repentance which brings restoration that brings us to refinement. Amen? If you want to understand the comfort that's going to be coming to you, then position yourself, align yourself, repent, turn from those ways and align with the King and you will receive comfort. That's the good news of the kingdom. John was a voice of comfort. He had a voice and he wasn't afraid to use it. Why do I say this? Because with this voice, although it's a voice of comfort, he calls people to repentance. That's not a nice word. That's not politically correct today. In fact, there's a teaching that tells you that there's no longer a need for repentance. It's going through Christian circles. Some of your friends, when you tell them, we still have to repent, they tell you, no need to repent anymore because it's already a done deal. So we will explore biblical repentance in another session. The voice of repentance is being silenced today. You know why it's being silenced? Because if you talk about repentance, you have to talk about sin. And people don't like to hear sin today. They don't want you to tell them that they have sin. Whenever you mention sin, it doesn't make me feel good. So you cannot make me feel bad. So we are told to ignore sin as if it's not there. He was not afraid to use his voice by calling out the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. The moment they came onto the scene, he looks at them and he says, you brood of vipers. Well, those are strong words. Can you imagine if your pastor stepped in and you said that? Illustration only. I'm not saying your pastor is a brute of, uh, is a viper. I'm not uh, religious leaders. You get my idea? Illustration. But he looks at the religious leaders and he says, brute of vipers, which means you are double-forked people. You say one thing, you don't mean it. You say one thing, but you live in another way. Hypocrite. That's a famous word in Christian circles today. Welcome to the club. Interestingly, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus would use the same terms on the same group of people. He had a voice. He was not afraid to use it. He pronounces judgment and wrath. Who warned you of the wrath to come? The axe is laid to the tree. If you're not producing good fruit, it's going to come really quickly. That tree is going to come down. See, when a king comes... It's good news for those who respond correctly, but it's bad news for those who will respond wrongly. There's going to be a time of separation. The wheat will be gathered into the barn. The chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. Friends, when was the last time you heard a message about hell? Don't have. I can't remember, honestly. Because you're not allowed to talk fire and brimstone these days. Today, there's an entire book written that says that there's no such thing as hell. It's a, it's, a, it's a figment of your imagination only. It's not a real place. Jesus didn't mean it. He was just trying to scare you. That's all. This is going around, friends. See, John had a voice and he was not worried or afraid to use it. He's not condemning people. He's trying to help someone. He said, oh, you love people, you cannot tell them about hell. No, you love them, that's why you tell them about hell. 
John used his voice to call out Herod's illicit relationship with his brother's wife, Herodias. In other words, John was not afraid to call sin, sin. Today we tell Christians in wrong relationships, it's okay. We understand these emotional things. If you love the person, what to do? If you don't love anymore, bopienna. We don't agree, but we still love you. Really, this is happening. Why? Grace. We have to accept you. So you fling the doors wide open. We dare not offend anyone. We're afraid we'll lose them. Today, we dare not speak out against same-sex marriages. Because the moment you say something, oh, you are language of hate. You are bigots. So we dare not say anything. Our voice is silenced. But do you know that this group is called a minority, the vocal minority? In the United States of America, that's just passed the same-sex marriage ruling. It's only 2% of this huge nation that is lobbying for it. But they are making it as if it's a normal thing. Don't think it's not going to happen to us, friends. I'm not saying that if you shout and scream, it doesn't happen. Some things, I believe, cannot be prayed away because God has already warned us of the times to come. The point is, one day, will we give account to say, Lord, I had the opportunity to say it, but I didn't. Will you be that voice? We learned that John embraced the wilderness until it was time. In Luke chapter 1, verse 80, we're told the child, John, grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts or the wilderness till the day of his manifestation to Israel. Now, because of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, they, they, they stumbled upon this sect called the Qumran sect. And they are very much like the Desert Fathers. They will live um, separated lives and in close community with one another, but they will come out of the greater community because they wanted to live a life of holiness. They were known as ascetics, and they were very disciplined in the way that they dress, as well as the kind of a food they eat. Very, very disciplined people, all for good reason. So some are saying that John could have been one of the members of this Kamran sect, but it is not conclusive. But I see two things that are important about John that we can learn. John's preparation was in the wilderness. So friends, if you're in the wilderness now, you're in a good place. You know, we don't like the wilderness, right? None of us are going to say, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, I'm in the wilderness. But throughout Scripture, we see the, scripture, the, the wilderness is not necessarily a bad place. And here I want to encourage you that there will be seasons of wilderness in our lives. And some of these seasons may be caused by ourselves that bring us into a place of dryness. But some of these may be entirely led by the Lord. Don't frown on the wilderness. Make the most of the wilderness. God will use these times to test and to train us. We will learn how to rely on Him and His Word. And it says, John grew strong in the Spirit, in the wilderness. 
Sometimes when we're out in community, we grow soft. But when we are in the wilderness, we are strengthened in the Spirit as we draw from Him in these times of seeming dryness. There are many accounts of God's servant in the wilderness. Moses had a time in the wilderness. The people of Israel spent time in the wilderness. King David, before he came onto the throne, was a fugitive in the wilderness. Paul, after his Damascus experience, spent, as we understand from tradition, even a time in the wilderness. John the Baptist, in the wilderness. When we get to chapter 4, Jesus will be led into the wilderness. If you are in the wilderness, say praise the Lord. You're in a good place. We find also that John's pulpit was in the wilderness. This was the craziest place to have a pulpit. It was in the wilderness, not in the temple. He is a voice crying out in the wilderness. Interestingly, later when we look at Jesus, his pulpit was also in the wilderness, by the sea, in the mountains, you know, in the outback. He goes into the temple, but you know what? The greatest opposition he met in the temple. And I learned something here. That sometimes we have to ask ourselves, you know, do we realize that there can be a certain religiosity that comes upon us when we are in the temple or in the church mode? When we get into the church, whoa, everyone's holy. Everyone's good. Everyone's praise the Lord. Oh. We hear the message, amen, praise the Lord. But the moment we come out, we leave it all in the church. There's a certain religiosity that happens in that kind of an environment. And maybe that's why God told John, don't go to the temple, stay in the wilderness. Preach there. Set up your stage down there and proclaim. And in order to hear John, the people had no choice. They had to come out of that system. They had to come out of their own environment and get into the wilderness. Where the attention will be there. It will be a totally different scenario. And God had their attention through John. And the voice will then be heard. Not only that, as they come out, it will be a symbol and a signal with a significance that they come out into the wilderness listening to a word from the Lord, perhaps awaken and uh, to be repenting and to align once more and going back into the system to do what they need to do. John embraced the wilderness. Maybe for our awakening weekend, we shouldn't take you to a nice hotel. We should all go to the wilderness. Who wants to say amen? I praise God that in certain quarters, some of the disciplines are being recovered. But you see, are we living the wilderness disciplined life? We learn about John that he also faced rejection and retaliation for righteousness' sake. And you can't really blame this guy, he was an oddball in the wilderness. In today's terms, we will call him countercultural. Countercultural. He'll do things crazily. He is, he's not really politi uh, politically astute or correct. He doesn't care about that. 
Today we tell people, you know, you, you cannot speak so fast, la. you must have wisdom. La. Otherwise you offend people, people don't want to listen to you. Somehow for John, it, it didn't matter, you see. He knew this is the message. He had to declare it. Even if it has to offend someone, he's willing to do it. His countercultural, his, his, his Gucci fashion sense was weird. People would look at him and laugh at him and, you know, and they would reject him. I said, this guy's a weirdo. But he answered only to God who was his king. His heart was to fulfill his assignment and he was to prepare a people of God. And you know, sometimes you want to prepare someone, you cannot go to them gently and sayang and say, would you come this way or would you come? No, you have to be firm and be clear. John's story didn't end too nicely. You and I know that he was arrested by Herod and he was in prison and later he was executed because of a silly oath to Herodias' daughter. But although he faced rejection, retaliation, this is Jesus' assessment of John. There has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus would teach in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do we play to the approval of men? Or do we live for the approval of God? Do we stay silent because of the fear of men? Or do we get awakened, aligned and assigned because of the fear of of the Lord. I couldn't resist this last point. John knew his assignment and he finished his race. How do I know this? We read in Acts chapter 13, verse 25. As John was finishing his course, and this word course is translated from the Greek word dromos. And in other places, this word dromos is translated race. As John was finishing his race, that means he's coming to the end of his assignment. If you don't know what race means in our keeper's understanding, and it's biblically accurate, read the book, Say to Our Keepers, in chapter 9. The race does not refer to your life. The race refers to your assignment. As John was finishing his course, then he said, Who do you think I am? I'm not he, but behold, there comes one after me. Right? That means he hasn't seen, he hasn't seen Jesus yet. He's already ending. He knows his race is coming to an end. His assignment is finishing. The moment he declares Jesus, a while later, he will be arrested. His race will have ended. But he was still alive in prison. See, John knew his assignment, and he fulfilled it. He knew he was a forerunner. He knew he had to make ready a people of the Lord. Doesn't mean that everyone was ready for the coming of Jesus. That's not the point. The point is, he knew his assignment, he executed it. How the people respond would be the people's problem. So let me ask you a question. 
as God's people. Are we ready? We know Jesus is coming again, and He's coming soon. But we also know that each time before the King arrives, He sends His messengers. Amen? That's what we have just learned through this entire one session. So we see in Malachi chapter 3, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That was John the Baptist. But even when Jesus was doing his ministry on earth, you read in Luke chapter 9 and Luke chapter 10, that before he went into a certain place, he will send his disciples before him. He says, you go in before my face and you go prepare the place. Go declare, and then I will join you after that. So we begin to understand that Jesus also has messengers sent before him. Who are these messengers? They are his disciples. Today I believe that the church is the forerunner to the coming of Jesus Christ. Today the church is the voice that will declare the coming of the Lord. Would you agree with me on that? The question is, who makes up the church? Only the pastors? Only those who preach in that sense? I think as Jesus sends his disciples in, we who identify ourselves as disciples, we have a part to play in the declaration of his coming. And we've already learned that John knew his assignment and John ran his race. My question is, do we know our assignments? And are we running our races? You see, we're talking about kingdom assignments. And I know that each of us will have a different type of an assignment. And we can learn from the different aspects that I've shared with you from the ministry of John the Baptist. But a more important question for you and I to answer this evening as we close is this. Are you yourself prepared and ready? As you look at this ministry of John... And to see how he prepared God's people who were presumptuous, who thought that everything is going to go well with them. I'm asking ourselves to do a self-evaluation. Maybe we need to get into the wilderness to hear the voice of the Lord for ourselves first. Can I be a representative of that voice in the wilderness tonight, shouting out and declaring to each of you? Not exactly in the wilderness tonight, but maybe asking you, are you ready and prepared for the Lord. But as you evaluate and answer that question, you must consider the next one. Are you preparing others to be ready? Because you and I have a part to play as we wait the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I leave you with this as we close. The title for tonight's message is Prepared and Ready. And I believe this is going to be a prophetic declaration that all of us would be prepared and we would be ready. Amen? So will you join me as we close in prayer? Father, we thank you for the ministry of John the Baptist. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus declared that he was a great man. It might not have ended really well for him, but we know, Lord, that he is with you and his rewards are awaiting him. But Lord, we also learned from John that you send messengers before your coming. We know, Lord, that there will be others that you will send as the time gets shorter. There will be voices 
that will begin to declare even more clearly and more fervently. But for now, Lord, we are your church, Lord, and we are your people. We ask that you will prepare us. We ask, Lord, that you will make us ready. And in that, Lord, there are things that you will do for us, Lord, if we would respond in obedience. So, Lord, enable us, Lord, to be prepared and to be made ready, even as we heed this voice in the wilderness in John. Help us, Lord, to understand our assignments. Help us, Lord, to use the voice that you've given to us. Help us, Lord, to enjoy even the times of your preparation in our lives so that, Lord, we can be raised up and to be used for your glory. That we can stand firm, Lord, and also welcome the day of your coming. And so we thank you, Lord, as we close this time. Bless our company here today, Lord, even as we depart and go home, Lord. Grant us journey mercies, Lord. And we thank you, we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.